This is the third message in our four-part series entitled, Lessons in Loving. In this message, we're going to discuss the skills necessary to help us grow in interpersonal intelligence, or relating with others. It should be mentioned here that there is a definite connection between the manner in which we relate to self and the way we relate to others. It seems that we hold out to others the same kinds of acceptance and respect with which we regard ourselves. That is why it's so important to grow in intra-personal intelligence or relating to self if we're going to grow in our relationships with others. Nevertheless, there are definite skills which need to be learned if we hope to connect with other people. The intra-personal skills enable us to be aware of whom it is that is doing the connecting. Yet the connecting process itself is accomplished through the interpersonal skills. So let us begin with a definition of interpersonal intelligence. And this definition that I'm going to give you is from Howard Gardner's book, Frames of Mind. Gardner defines interpersonal intelligence, or relating with others, and the skills that go with that, as the ability to read the intentions and desires of others, even when hidden, and to act upon this knowledge. So let's look at the parts of that again. To read the intentions and desires of others. In other words, to see other people and who they are and what they want. Even when hidden, even when it seems to be below the surface, and to act upon this knowledge. And for us as Christians, to act upon this knowledge means to relate with them in a loving manner. If we can do this, if we can connect with people in this manner, then intimacy will happen. And as we mentioned in our first message, intimacy is a very great human hunger. It's a sense of being connected with other people on a deep feeling level, to be part of another, to have another person become a part of who we are. I believe there are implications here for our own experience of the mystical body of Christ. To the extent that we experience intimacy in our relationships, and again, we're not just talking here about romantic relationships, but our friendships, our relationships with family members and co-workers, well, to the extent that we experience intimacy in those relationships, we will feel a part of community. We would have a sense of belonging and feel ourselves to be connected with others. And so intimacy is a struggle. And if we're going to be intimate with others, there are some skills that we need to learn. And what I'd like to do is to review the skills that we need to learn in order to grow in interpersonal intelligence and so bring to our lives the possibility of intimacy in our relationships. And in going through these skills, I know that many people have learned them or learned some of them, but many of us have not. And if we haven't learned these skills, then our relationships are going to be shallow or unsatisfying. As with the intrapersonal skills, my assumption here is that we can learn the skills and practice them, but we have to be motivated in order to do that. And we have to be committed to doing a lot of work so that they become a habitual and natural part of our manner of relating with others. So I'm going to go through the nine basic interpersonal skills now 
and just talk a little bit about each and ways that we can practice them in our lives and grow in them. The first of the basic interpersonal skills is listening. Without listening, nothing else is possible. Let's go back to Gardner's definition of interpersonal intelligence or relating with others. He says it's to read the intentions and desires of others even when hidden. Well, listening is, is the starting point for reading the intentions and desires of others. Listening is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of understanding. There's an old Chinese proverb about a spiritual master working with his students, and the students were talking and talking and talking during this tea ritual they were having. And the master was pouring tea into the cup, and he simply kept pouring and pouring and pouring until the cup was overflowing. Finally, the students noticed what was happening and said, what are you doing? Why are you pouring this tea? It's running all over the floor. And the master replied in the same way, you students are also so full of yourselves that you can't hear what I'm saying. And that's one of the problems with listening. In order to listen, we have to have an empty space inside of us that can receive another person into our being. We have to create this inner space through our prayer, through meditation, through practicing the intrapersonal skills we talked about in our second message. Sometimes simply the discipline of trying to listen to others will create the space itself. But we all have a certain amount of space, and we're not talking here about having absolute space. Only God has that, and so only God can listen to us perfectly and completely at all times. But it is important that we have some, and that we practice spiritual disciplines which help us to be a better listener. Listening is hard work. It means focusing our attention completely on the other person. What are their thoughts? What are their feelings? What are their desires and experiences? Listening means getting under the skin of another, getting into their consciousness so that we know what it feels like and seems like to be that person in this time. What we usually notice when we begin to listen is that, like the Chinese students in the little parable, we're full of ourselves, that as we listen to others, we have thoughts about what they need, we have thoughts about other things that we'd rather be doing, that we don't have a whole lot of empty space, that in fact it's pretty hard to listen to others. So we have to learn to use our senses, we have to learn to get into the now, we have to learn to let go of our defenses, we have to learn to let the other person come into our lives so that we can connect with them. This kind of listening also presupposes a willingness to accept other people and their experiences just as they are and without any kind of judgment from us. We may not agree with some of the things they're saying, but it's important that we at first at least get to know what it is that they are saying. Closely related to listening and part of listening is a second critical skill, validating. Validating is sometimes called active listening, and it simply means reflecting back to the others what we're hearing and seeing as they relate their experiences to us. We might say, for example, so you felt angry when this happened, or so this is what you were thinking, or this is what your experience was, 
I understand. And that's as far as validating goes. Validating simply feeds back to the other what we are hearing and leaves it at that. It goes against our natural tendency to give advice or to invalidate their experiences by saying something as, you shouldn't feel that way or you shouldn't have done that. Validating simply accepts their experiences and lets them know that we do accept their experiences. Most people need validating more than any other kind of response from us. Most people don't want advice. If they do, they'll ask for it. Most people simply need to be validated in their experiences. And just think of your own experiences and how good it feels to share with another person what you've been through and what's going on in your life and how good it feels when the other person simply accepts you, simply listens, simply says, I, I understand, this is what happened, this is what you were feeling, and so forth. Our need to be heard is one of our greatest needs. It's one of the things that helps to give meaning to our lives, to, to feel that another human being knows us and accepts us just as we are. So how do we practice listening and validating? Well, I think we have to be, first of all, conscious of what those skills are, and that's what we're doing here. But we also have to be conscious when we're in a conversation with another person uh, of whether or not we are listening, uh, whether or not we are distracted. Uh, we, we focus our senses, our eyes, our ears, on what the other person looks like, what they're doing, and, and we simply feed back to them verbally what it is that we're hearing. Okay, so listening and validating. And we'll come back to those two again and again because they are the foundations, really, of, of growing in interpersonal intelligence. Um, to read the intentions and desires of others, even when hidden, requires listening and validating. A third skill is clarifying. And it's closely related to validating, but it's not quite the same thing. Clarifying means asking questions when you don't understand. You might say, for example, what do you mean when you say that this experience happened? What do you mean when you say that uh, you experienced the Holy Spirit? What do you mean when you say that you were afraid at work? Tell me more about that. So clarifying is, is really inviting the other person to open up even more and to explain their experiences in a way that you can understand. And what do we do as the other person does that? Again, we listen and we validate. Okay, moving on to skill number four, and we're moving kind of fast. It's gonna slow down in a little while. Empathizing. Empathizing builds on listening, validating, and clarifying by saying, okay, so you felt this way, I understand. And when we empathize, we say, I've felt that way too. Usually, the way we empathize with others, we use such, such phrases uh, as, uh, I know exactly how you feel. That's, that's a, a common statement that's meant to reflect empathy. And of course, it's, it's inaccurate in the sense that we, we actually don't know exactly how other people feel, but we have felt the feelings that they're feeling. Uh, we don't know what it is to be that person with that feeling at that time. 
but we do know what it is to be afraid, to be embarrassed, to be happy, and so forth. And so having heard another person talk about those feelings and experiences, it's, it's very appropriate at times to say, I know that feeling. I've felt that way too. And what this skill enables us to do is to connect our own experiences with those of another. It cannot happen unless we first listen, validated, and clarified. But it is important that it, it does happen sometimes. It's true that most people uh, in their conversations with us simply want to be heard and validated. But it's also true that we need to be heard and validated ourselves. And empathizing with the experiences of another is a very good way to receive from the other that kind of blessing, the blessing of being heard and validated. Empathy is one of our most important bridges to intimacy. There is no intimacy without empathy, for it is through empathy that we connect with others on a feeling level. Okay, so four skills so far, and em empathizing is the first skill in which we are beginning to take some initiative ourselves in talking about our own experiences. The first three would be skills in which we are responsive, uh, somewhat passive, although having said that, I know that listening is not a passive experience. It's a very active experience, and if you've ever sat through a day listening to a lecture or a speaker and really trying to listen you know how much hard work that is to keep your attention focused it's it can be a quite draining experience and as I go through these skills uh, we've talked about four of them I'm certainly not suggesting that that they have to be practiced in that order uh, there certainly are times when we want to share our experiences and we can take the initiative to do that uh, in listening to others, however, I think it is important that we, we begin with listening, then go on to validating and clarifying. Okay, affirming is our fifth skill. And affirming is something that we can do anytime. We don't have to go through the previous four steps, which is what I was just talking about here. Affirming means that we let others know what we like about them, even if they haven't asked us for that. And affirmation is one of the most powerful ways in which we can love another person. Affirmation means holding up a mirror before another and in that mirror reflecting back to them a couple of things. An evaluation of their personhood, evaluation of behavior. And I think we need to recognize the simple fact that everything we do in our relationships with other people especially people we're close to, is constantly reflecting back to them an evaluation on those two levels of their personhood and their behavior in the way that we relate to them, in the way that we look at them, in the things that we say and do. We are letting them know whether we like them as people and whether we like their behavior. And separating those two means that at times we will be uh, reflecting back on the personhood level other times we'll be reflecting back on the behavior level. And affirmation simply means that the evaluation we reflect back to another is positive for behavior and positive 
for personhood. Affirmation says, quite simply, I like who you are, and I like what you do. And when another person receives a message like that from us, then it's possible for them to internalize that message, and if they do, uh, it's a very uh, character-building kind of a message, because internalized affirmation means I am lovable, I am capable, I'm a good person, and there are some things that I know how to do well. Uh, obviously, the importance of affirmation in parent-child relationships comes to mind here, that children are especially in need of affirmation because they don't have the skills to affirm themselves. They need others to affirm them for a very long period of time before they can then begin to talk to themselves and affirm themselves. How do we affirm others? It can be very simple, just saying thank you, uh, please, not taking them for granted, uh, things that we used to call manners, which are very important still in our relationships. Uh, another very simple rule, uh, which has been shared by Dale Carnegie in some of his workshops and books on getting along with people, making friends, influencing people, and so forth, if you see something you like about another person, tell them. And Carnegie made this a practice in his own life, to try to affirm people as often as possible, and to do it sincerely, without flattering them or without sounding phony or superficial. And he relates an instance of uh, one time in his life when he was standing in a checkout line with a big batch of groceries. And the person working at the checkout looked really tired and cross and cranky, quite haggard, and was complaining a great deal as, as the people presented their groceries. And uh, Carnegie determined that he was going to find something nice to say about this person no matter what, even though this person was very disagreeable. And when he got to that place in the line where his groceries were being checked out, he told the person, I just couldn't help noticing while I was standing in line what a beautiful head of hair you have. And he said at that moment the person just lit up like a light bulb and said, well, thank you. You know, other people have told me that I have nice hair too and seemed to make a big difference in that person's attitude. And that's just one small example. I could share examples from my own life just noticing the way my wife and kids dress, commenting on that. Uh, again, the importance of manners, of just please, thank you, uh, good morning, good evening, good night, of uh, sharing with them hugs and kisses, uh, all those little things that let other people know, number one, that I see them, and number two, that I like some of the things that I see. If they internalize those things, they're going to be much more positive, much more stronger in their self-worth, and I'll be happier living with them. They'll be better people to live with. So affirmation, like the other relationship skills, does take some work. We have to notice, and then we have to make a decision to do it, to tell the other person what it is that we like. I think it's, it's important to affirm personhood and behavior at different times. For example, if my daughter were, were to come home with a good report card, straight A's, well, I would certainly want to affirm her in that and let her know that I thought she did a good job and that I was proud of her and then get her to talk a little bit about how she feels about this. It would be a mistake for me to tell my daughter in that circumstance, 
Oh, you made straight A's. How nice. I really love you. What would be the message that she would be getting? Well, she would know that I was glad she made straight A's, but she would also hear me saying those magical words, I love you, at a very important time like that. And if I do that often enough, if I tell her I love her when she does things that please me, she might get the message that I love her because she does those things, and that somehow she has to do good things to please me to earn my love. And as a counselor, I've seen that a very great deal. There are many, many people who somehow grow up with the message that they have to earn love, and so they try to do good things for others, they try to impress others, they try to be nice, they try to make the other person happy, always with the idea of earning that person's love. And uh, there's nothing you can do to earn another person's love. Love is a gift that one person extends to the other. It's a decision that we make too, and it's a decision that we make on the basis of a lot of different things. But we, we don't earn the love of another in the sense that we can buy it with good works or anything like that. And of course there are implications here for our relationship with God. God doesn't love us or affirm us because we do good things. God's love for us is a gift that God extends to us, not because we behave well, but simply because God is a God of love. And as creatures, as children of God, God focuses this love on us as, as a gift. So it's important to affirm personhood and behavior separately. And one way we can make sure we do this is to let another person know that we love them in irrelevant times, as irrelevant as possible, to walk up to them just out of the blue and hug them or kiss them on the cheek or shake their hand or give them a, a, a nice little pat on the back and say, I really love you, I'm really glad that you're in our family, or I'm really glad I know you, uh, I consider you a good friend. And it, the first few times you do this, the person might be saying, well, what did I do? How, how do I deserve this? Uh, what have I done? And you might just simply say, well, nothing. I just wanted to let you know that. And what a freeing thing it is, is to know that another person loves us and cares for us just because we're in their lives that we haven't necessarily done anything to deserve that. Okay, so affirmation. And if we can improve our affirmation, if we can do a little bit more affirming, it will make a difference in our relationships. And it takes work, it takes practice. We have to notice at the end of the day when we do our inventory whether we've missed opportunities to affirm and just continue to make that resolution to be more affirming whenever we can. The opposite of affirming, and it's certainly not a, a skill that I'm going to talk about, it's not our sixth skill, but I think we just need to notice that the, uh, the opposite of affirmation is shaming. Shaming is the communication of a negative evaluation of personhood and behavior, especially personhood, because there are times when we need to confront behavior. But shaming is a little different in, in that shame says, not only do I not like what you do, I don't like you either. And if this is the mirror that we hold up before others, especially little children, then they might internalize that message. 
and they might get to believing themselves that they're no good, that they're incapable, and they'll come out with a first-class case of low self-worth. During the five years I worked with the Louisiana Department of Education, I came across many, many children who had this shame-based identity. And these were the children who were the most vulnerable to peer pressure and the most likely to get into problems at school with discipline, to use alcohol and drugs, to get in fights on the playground. They were very difficult to correct because they had the shame-based personality. They believed they were no good. And so when the teacher would confront their behavior, and, and behavioral confrontation is, is a very important skill, they would conclude from that that because they were misbehaving, they must be no good. And so there's a real difference between disciplining and shaming. We must stop shaming people. And we shame people whenever we use destructive labels that we call them names, put down names, when we judge them harshly, when we compare them with one another. Why can't you be more like your brother, your sister? Why can't you be less like your father or mother? We use names like stupid or dummy, nitwit, and so forth. Uh, those kinds of evaluations, uh, if they happen often enough, and granted we will all slip from time to time with that, but if, if this happens as a matter of course, and that person concludes from all that evaluation that they are in fact no good, that's a very terrible thing that's happened. That's a destruction of a person. It is sin. So if we can do probably nothing in our relationships but stop shaming, our relationships will get better. If, in addition, we can do more listening, validating, clarifying, empathizing, and affirming, there's a sure guarantee that if we do those things, we'll never be short on friends, we'll never be short on people who love us, and we're going to experience a great deal of intimacy in our lives. So far, we've been on the positive side, and nobody's going to mind if we do listening, validating, clarifying, empathizing, and affirming. Nobody will object to that. Of course, uh, we have our wants and needs too. We're not just in this world to connect with others according to their terms. And so what do we do about our wants and our needs? And it's here that we have to learn the skill called asserting. And asserting simply means to speak for one's own wants and needs in a straightforward manner, without playing games, without trying to manipulate or control another. And the formula we use for asserting is simply, I would like. And whatever you would like, you fill in the blank. And, and you fill it in by stating specific behaviors for yourself. I would like to take a nap. I would like to eat supper early tonight. I would like to go out to the movies. To simply say that, when you, when you say that in that manner, you give another person a very clear signal that they can respond to. Surprisingly, this is a very difficult skill for some people. Some people find assertiveness very hard. Uh, one reason they do this is because uh, they don't feel that their wants and needs are important. That They've learned that love means my needs are not important, but the other person's needs are important. And so if, if my needs come into conflict with the other person's, then 
uh, if I truly love the other person, I'll put my wants and needs aside and do what they want instead. And this is a very distorted view of love, of course, because uh, what the person who does this ends up uh, becoming is a doormat, is a person that can be walked on, is a person that uh, the partner would lose respect for. And we do not respect a person who does not stand up for their own wants and needs. Chances are, too, that a person who puts their own wants and needs aside again and again and again because of some distorted view of love will begin to build up resentment, will begin to feel as though they're taken advantage of, and will finally feel like a victim. Uh, so that's one reason, is the distorted view of love. Another reason is that people very often have low self-worth and are just afraid that if they speak up for their wants and needs, another person will reject them. What happens, for example, if I say, I would like to go out with my friends tonight, and the person that I'm asking that of says no. Can I handle no? And, and so uh, they would rather many times not even ask than to risk the possibility of a confrontation. Well, here's a basic principle in relationships, though, that, that we really need to stand on, and it's that we are responsible for articulating our own wants and needs. Love doesn't mean that I put my wants and needs aside. Nor does love mean that the other person should know what I want and need. And that's a, that's a third reason many people are not assertive, is because they think the other person should know. Why should I have to say what I want and need? If the other person truly loves me, they would know I need a break. And uh, you find this especially in spouses, where uh, one becomes very tired, for example, of taking care of the kids, and expects the other to know that they're tired, that they need a break, and expects the other to offer to do something about that. So that's that's a misconception we have many times, and if we, if we can recognize the fact that we're responsible for articulating our own wants and needs, then we can get out of that, that trap of waiting for the other to ask us if we need anything. We use here uh, also the iMessage format for expressing feelings, which we discussed in our message on intrapersonal skills. iMessage simply means, I feel this way about this circumstance or situation because this is how, these are the consequences to me and others. So, uh, asserting skills, uh, how do we practice this? Well, we become conscious of what our wants and needs are, and we learn to ask for our wants and needs in a simple, straightforward manner, without judging the others, without any kind of a, a preface to the assertive statement, which is intended to win favor. We simply say what we want and what we need, and then we wait for the other's response. And uh, that takes us into our next skill, our seventh one, which is negotiating. What if, for example, we say we want to go out for the evening with our friends, and the other partner, let us say in this case a spouse, this is an area where there may be conflict, says, well, I'm tired too, and I want to go out with my friends too. So what are we going to do about the kids and the dirty house and uh, some of the other things that we have to put up with? Negotiating means that we have to learn how to balance our own wants and needs with others' wants and needs. There are two unhealthy negotiating st styles that I've alluded to already. 
and one of them is trying to control the other person, which means when I want something and you want something else, we're going to do what I want, either because I'm the head of the house and my word is law, or because I'm the stronger one, or the meaner one, or the one who brings home the money, and so forth. And, and that's a negotiating style that we find in many, many homes. Uh, it was modeled by the parents of many of today's parents, and uh, is sometimes even justified by the scriptures. Wives, obey your husbands. Uh, they don't see the part that says, husbands, love your wives, as Christ has loved the church. So that's controlling. And I think here an example of a, uh, a woman who came to see me when I was working uh, in substance abuse prevention. She came to see me about her son's discipline problems in school. He used to be a good student, and lately he had started cutting up in class, and his grades had started falling. He had gotten caught throwing rocks through the window in a school bus. He busted a few windows, and that was costing him some money. And so she wanted to know what was going on. Uh, could it be that he had some drug involvement? And we talked about that for a while and agreed that, yeah, that needed to be checked out. He needed to uh, have a drug screen done and, and maybe uh, go through an evaluation for chemical dependency. But we also talked about the boy's relationship with his dad. And she recounted an incident of, uh, that had happened the previous weekend. The boy was scheduled to go on a field trip with his friends, and it was a school-sponsored field trip. There were going to be chaperones. It was going to be a good learning experience, and it wasn't going to cost very much money at all, just a little something to pay for the bus fare. And the mother had given him uh, permission to go. She said he could uh, as long as he did his chores. And so he did his chores, and he was all prepared to go. But just almost as an afterthought, she says, well, you'd just better go check it out with your dad, too, in case he has something else planned that I don't know about. And so the boy went and checked it out with dad, and dad said, no, you can't go. And the boy said, why can't I go? She says, because I say so. He says, well, I've done my chores, and mom said it's okay, and it's a school trip. He says, listen, I don't need to tell you what my reasons are. My answer is no, and no is no. And so the mother went in to intercede, and he told her the same kinds of things, that he was the man of the house, and wives should obey their husbands, and certainly children should obey their parents, and his answer was no, and that's the end of that. That's controlling. And people who put up with that would put up with the other kind of negotiating skill that is very unhealthy, and that's submitting. And by the way, the young man in this uh, particular example I gave you, I think most of his problems stemmed from that. As it turned out, he did not have a problem with alcohol and drugs. His problem had to do with a lot of repressed anger, with his uh, tremendous resentment he felt toward his dad. What we need to learn are some healthy steps to negotiation. That love doesn't mean I have to put my life aside so you can live your life. Uh, that we can negotiate our wants and needs in a way that we can both get what we want, at least some of the time. And so these are the steps. The first one, what do I want and what do you want? That we both need to give each other simple assertive messages to state what we want in clear behavioral terms. The second step, why do we want it? Why do I want to do this? 
and I share with you my values and my feelings. And here we need to listen, validate, clarify, empathize. A third step, how strongly do we feel about this particular request? Is it a, is it a real uh, urgent need for us, or is it something that we might like to do, but, uh, well, we can never mind it, too? A fourth step, is there any way we can both get what we want? And sometimes there is a way. One is compromise. We can both give up a little bit of what we want so that we can both get something. Another way is taking turns. We'll do it your way this week and we'll do it my way next week. And synthesizing. Maybe we can put our wants and needs together in some kind of a novel uh, scenario or proposition and we'll both get not only what we want, we'll get more. You want to go out to the country for a drive and I want to eat out. Well, maybe we can go riding into the country and grab something to eat. We can go eat out in the country. Well, suppose you, you go through those, those steps, those four steps, and you're still stuck. There's no possibility for compromising or synthesizing. It's at that point that we need to learn to agree to disagree. Can we find other ways to meet our wants and needs? Can we put this thing on hold? Can we choose the relationship over our need to be right? And that's a very important and mature step. Uh, putting off the power struggle. That is, of course, if it can be put off. Sometimes decisions need to be made and uh, you just have to hang in there with the negotiating process. There's a great deal of work that needs to be done by most of us in learning to assert our wants and needs and then to negotiate with another. But there's no question that this negotiating process can be greatly assisted if we have learned to listen, validate, clarify, empathize, and affirm. Those are the, the foundational steps, the positive aspects of interpersonal intelligence, and they make the rest possible. Okay, uh, we talked earlier about affirming others, uh, affirming the good things they do and who they are as persons. But there's, there's an eighth skill that we need to talk about here, and that's confronting. Because, quite obviously, people do things that we disagree with and that we don't like. And, and when that happens, we can't affirm them. We can't say, I really like what you're doing, uh, nor should we shame them, however, to put them down as persons. So what confronting is, is uh, letting a person know what they do that we don't like. And we make a very careful uh, point here of sticking with behavior only. We're not talking about the person, we're talking about what they do. So we use an assertive communication to tell others what we don't like. I would like you to stop doing this. I don't like it when you talk to me like that. Uh, a, a principle here that's very exciting to me and that many people don't know is that you control the terms in all of your relationships. If you don't want to talk to somebody, you don't have to. If you don't like the way they're talking to you, then you don't have to continue the conversation. That uh, you control your own behavior in a relationship. You can't control another person's, but you can control your own. Okay? So confronting means giving others feedback about what they do that we don't like and then asking them to change by using an assertive message. I would like you to do this from now on instead of that. And then you, of course, have to enter the negotiating process. 
Okay, a ninth skill, which binds the rest up uh, for those many times when we will make the mistake, is forgiving. We will hurt one another, even if we try real hard at these skills, even if we've been practicing them for years. We will hurt one another, and when we do, we need to practice forgiving. Now, forgiving doesn't mean that we give in to another or that we agree with what they've done or even that we forget what happened. Forgiveness means that we hold nothing against the other. And the surest sign that we have forgiven another is when we've let go of resentment. Now, one more thing, forgiveness doesn't mean you have to continue the relationship with another. You may decide after a problem has developed that you don't want to continue in that relationship, that it's too risky and that it probably won't do any good. Still, even then when the relationship has broken down, it's important to forgive the other uh, so that you don't carry resentment around in your heart. Expressing hurt feelings is a part of forgiveness. And we have to do this or else the hurt feelings will continue to uh, cause resentments. And we also at times may even have to pray for the others to wish them well. And this is a very powerful way to forgive another, is to pray for them and their needs. It's very difficult to stay mad at a person if you pray for them. Because when we pray for them, we're channeling the energy of love through our own spirit toward the spirit of another. And that's a healing kind of a thing that happens. So forgiving is what allows the relationships to continue when we've gotten stuck in other areas. So those are the nine skills, and we use them at different times in all of our relationships. Uh, sounds like a lot to remember. I'd like to close this by just sharing a couple of suggestions for focusing these skills in our everyday lives. When we're with another, we stay focused by asking, what does the other person want or need from me? And here we may decide they need to be listened to, validated, uh, affirmed. Uh, what does the other person want or need? And secondly, what do I want or need from this other person? I want to connect my experiences with theirs. I want to empathize. I want to affirm. I want to negotiate something with them. Okay, so those two little statements will help us to call to mind the skill we need. Uh, also, we make use of our daily inventory, which we mentioned in message number two, to look back at the end of the day to see what our relationships were like. What were we doing? Uh, did we miss opportunities to affirm? Were we listening when we should have been listening? And as we do that inventory, we pat ourselves on the back for the progress that we've been making, and we also make resolutions to practice relationship skills more in places where we see that needs to be done. Daily inventory and constant focusing through the day will help us to grow in those relationship skills. And if we do, we'll experience more intimacy in our lives we'll feel more connected with others, we'll have a greater sense of meaning in life, and that's what it's all about.